According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me in Proverbs chapter 12. That's what I'm missing. I don't have my Proverbs notes up here. That's all right. Proverbs chapter 12. Well, I'll follow the slideshow and we'll see where it goes. That's right. Jesus didn't have PowerPoint, so who needs PowerPoint? God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer as for His faithfulness as we come before Him. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning recognizing that uh, this is your grace on display. That uh, we don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to pastor. But here we are. And uh, saved by your grace and gifted and called and everything, Father. By your grace, in your wisdom, in your timing, in the uh, perfection of your will, in ways that uh, honestly we, we barely understand. The fringes of your ways, Father. I thank you for calling us to be your children, for giving us the living and abiding Word of God, for commanding us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I do thank you for this morning and the blessings we have to study once again. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 12, and I'll just run through this to remind all of us what we're doing here, and we'll see if this will indeed pop up. There we go. Proverbs 12, 1, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And boy, there's a verse you can preach for a month at a time. Um, The love of knowledge requires discipline and reproof. And I think it's interesting, um, people say they want knowledge, but they don't want to pay the price to obtain it. And the, the truth is they don't really want knowledge. They want what they, they want their assumptions to be validated. They want what they think already in the first place to be true. And, and then they want to call that knowledge. No, knowledge is, is to humble yourself before the God of truth and accept what He reveals. And it does require discipline and reproof. And apart from this blessing, we are stupid brutes. And, uh, the, and that's a good term. In fact, I'm glad that that comes up here. He who hates reproof is stupid. That term for stupid refers to the animal realm. It refers to the brute. It refers to the creature that is alive, that has a soul, but is not rational. And that's uh, what we're dealing with when we talk about our, our verse today. We're going to get into the, the uh, mercy for the life of his animal, that we, uh, we should... Uh, recognize what the role of humanity is and, and how we are connected to uh, the other realms of creation, such as uh, the animal realm. So that will come up uh, later here today. Verse 2, a good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. Let me skip through some of these subpoints here. Get down to point 2. The grace of God and the condemnation of God are contingently targeted. God's grace and God's condemnation, they are contingently targeted. And so what do you want to do? Do you want to be the object of God's grace or do you want to be the object of God's condemnation? (laughs) Choose you this day uh, what you uh, choose to line yourself up for. And uh, you can walk in His goodness or you can devise evil. 
And, uh, and it is, it's really that simple, how you choose to conduct your life, whether you're going to line yourself up with His favor or line yourself up for His, his discipline, His condemnation, in uh, that contrast there. Skipping through the vocabulary here, point three, God's provision is for our fixed stability. And I love this. I love this in verse three. I love this in verse 19, because we live in a generation that has no stability of any kind. We live in a culture where everything is just chaos, apparently. So it says in verse 3, a man will not be established. That's fixed, grounded, stabilized. A man will not be established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will not be moved. And when we talk about being rooted and grounded in love, we talk about the stability that we have in the Scriptures, what God gives us. Not only does He save us, and that's eternal and that's great enough, but beyond that, we have a stability in our walk here and now. We have the orientation to truth that keeps us grounded. And so we're not tossed to and fro. We're not unstable in, in all these things. Verse 19 of the same chapter, truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Again, we have the expression of stability. <coughs> oh. All right. I think Lewis still has material. <laughs> if I need to call on a substitute for tonight, goodness. All right. Now, we'll see what else happens. So that's uh, point three in the outline. Point four, marriage is either the greatest blessing or the greatest cursing, or both from time to time in, in any marriage, as the case may be. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. And that's, uh, you know, the same woman in, b- in both halves of the verse there. It says from time to time we're going to have our moments, and that's why we need to grow together and we need to work through these things and, and, uh, and uh, be uh, the blessing that God has designed us to be for our marriage partner. Skipping down through some of these other things. It's interesting that uh, uh, I'm sure I'll have a lot of Kiev stories here this morning and tonight and in the upcoming classes, but it's interesting is for the first time we, uh, the school in Kiev has husbands and wives that are classmates together. I've never seen that before. And there were two married couples in the, in the school. So four out of the nine students were husbands and wives. And, and then two more of them were married to previous students from, from former classes, former years. So it was uh, definitely a different, uh, a different uh, attitude on the part of the students in that they, they were a little bit older and they were married and they had more stability. And, and it just, I thought it was interesting as an uh, application there in the school. All right. Thought, word, and deed. Now we get to where we are in verses 5, 6, and 7. Thought, word, and deed. Or, no, we're past this too, aren't we? Yeah, because we're down to the life of his animal in verse 10. So uh, in points five, six, and, uh, verses 5, 6, and 7, we covered under point 5 in a contrast of the righteous with the wicked, talking about the thought life, especially out of verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are just, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. That God expects us to think, and He expects us to put our thoughts together into developed comprehensive plans uh, called here counsels. And so this is how we are to think. We're to think creatively. And we have uh, thoughts and counsels there that speak to systematic planning and course charting. That means that you are rational. You are putting into uh, some kind of a plan what it is that God would have for you to do. And if you've got to be flexible, and if He changes the plan, that's fine. But you still are a rational being making these kind of plans. 
And this is what it means to be in the image of God. So, aspects there, went through the vocabulary. All right, and then we got to point six. As a follow-up to the applications of thoughts and counsels, we then have the praiseworthiness of insight. And this is what we talked about in verse eight. A man will be praised according to his insight, but one of perverse mind will be despised. And so the blessings of insight with respect to the Hebrew here of sekel. We spoke about not only thinking, but then the, the inferences and conclusions that come from that thinking, that you, you are putting the two and two together. You are making the appropriate applications. And this comes through skillful uh, success in life because you're able to think for yourself. That uh, biblical Christianity is not, uh, is not a mindless religion. We're not just parroting back what we've been told. We're not just mindlessly uh, following some cult leader or, or something of the sort that we are expected to think for ourselves. It is noble-minded to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. And really, of all the different thinking verbs that we have in the, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the idea of sekel, the idea of insight that addresses, I think it addresses that, that, that final step where we are taking what we know and we are adapting it to our circumstances and, and with insight, with skill, with wisdom, that we are, we are living it out, that, that thinking in the best possible way. And so uh, whether you want to render it as insight or success or skill, um, it, is, it is really the, 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 the greatest application of thinking that the New Testament or the Old Testament puts together. Okay, And uh, not surprising that uh, so much of this comes out of the book of Proverbs. <laughs> All right, because that's where we get our wisdom to live our lives. So that was point six detailing the aspects there in verse 8. Point 7. This is where we left off a hundred years ago. When, when was it? Was it two weeks ago? Seems like forever since we've been here. But okay. Um, domestic tranquility. And this goes well with the stability. Comes the uh, tranquility, if you will, in verses 9, 10, and 11. Better is he who has a, who is lightly esteemed and who has a servant, and then he who honors himself and lacks bread. That's verse 9. Verse 10, a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. And then finally, verse 11, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who pursues worthless things lacks sense. And so between verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, we have what I titled uh, domestic tranquility. Okay? Uh, expression I stole from um, the, the preamble to the to the Constitution and, and <laughs> different concepts. We want to have just a a peaceful, quiet life. This is temporal life at its best. This is what we're supposed to pray for in, in Second Timothy. We're supposed to pray for kings and all who are in authority, right? Why? So we can live a quiet life in godliness and dignity, so that we can conduct our own affairs. We can live our life. We can raise our children. We can, uh, this is the, the domestic tranquility of life at its best, is when we're living in the Word of God. Living it in the Word of God. And there's applications towards men, applications towards animals, and applications towards the land itself in verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. So when we talk about the relationship here towards men, we have the principles there we want to look at. All right, so subpoint A. This is the first time we've encountered this. Uh, there will be 18 more after this. 
Uh, it's, uh, it's the better than formula that we have in the book of Proverbs. 19 different times in Proverbs we have a better than proverbial contrast. And so it's the first time we've encountered this. Uh, we've been used to the synthetic parallelism, the, the antithetical parallelism. Uh, we've seen a lot of the, the poetry through the first you know, 11 chapters or 11 and a half chapters. Here we are now halfway through chapter 12 and we get our first better than. All right? And, and, and I love these. I think these are useful. I think these are, they're, these are um, uh, beneficial in raising teenagers, beneficial in preparing the next generation to, to show them, look, you can do this if you want, but this is better. <laughs> All right? Uh, you, can, you can make these kind of choices if you want. And we've got freedom and, 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 and God will, will honor our volition and you can conduct your life how you wish, but this is better. All right? And uh, that, that comes across in so many ways. And we spent the time two weeks ago, uh, or three weeks ago, whenever well, last time we were here together, to, um, to go through each of these better than contrasts throughout the book of Proverbs. And, and I find each one of them is a, is a blessing. So we will talk about them as we come to each one. So better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant. And so lightly esteemed, what's my reputation in the community? What's my, uh, what's my name? What's my uh, standing? Am I in the upper class? Am I in the middle class? Am I in the lower class? Am I in the working class? Am I, where am I? Am I in the underclass? Am I considered, um, am I considered reprehensible? <laughs> you know, what, what is my reputation? And where do I fit in my culture? See. And, and what's expected anyway? Do I have to keep up with the Joneses? <laughs> how, does that, how does that work? Well, you can do that. And uh, if you are sacrificing everything to build a better name, then uh, what have you really done? And uh, I think the, the second part to verse 9, he who honors himself and lacks bread. What happens when you are so deep in debt, when you have sacrificed everything just to keep up the appearances and, and, and yeah, your community thinks you're, you're, you're great and they think everything is marvelous. In fact, they're envious. They're envious of the house you live in. They're envious of the, the schools you're sending your kids to. They're envious of, of whatever, the clothes you wear. I mean, but none of it's real. None of it's real. And when it comes to uh, the, the debt load you're carrying and the, the net worth of, of less than zero, you lack bread. In fact, you're worth less than a loaf of bread at that point. So you're much better off in the first half of the verse. Better is he who is lightly esteemed. All right? Don't sweat your social standing. Don't sweat and certainly don't compromise your values in order to try to puff up something artificial. Go ahead and accept the lightly esteemed circumstance and uh, whatever that ends up being. All right? I mean, the real. Who cares? <laughs> the real praise is that the judgment seat of Christ is well done, good and faithful servant. And so to be lightly esteemed and have a servant, to have a slave. So you might not have a lot, but what you do have is debt free, free and clear, it's yours. You do have a, a bit of an inheritance to, to pass to your children and grandchildren and so forth. That's a whole lot better than the alternative as it's presented here. So, a modest life, unconcerned for social status, that is preferable to the bankrupt life that puts on a show. Absolutely preferable to the bankrupt life that puts on a show. 
And uh, not only do we have it described here, but I think these principles come back again and again and again. Proverbs 13, 7 says, There is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. And another pretends to be poor but has great wealth. And uh, that's, that's a whole different issue. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 13. Um, hiding your great wealth with uh, the external display of, of poverty. Alright, also Jeremiah 45, 5. Remember that rebuke of, the, of uh, Jeremiah's assistant? The rebuke on Baruch? Stop seeking greatness. Are you seeking great things for yourself? Stop that. That's not why we're here. Or Luke 14 in the parable there when Jesus says, you're, you're, you're trying to take the number one seat and the, the guy says, no, you need to move down there to the, to the unimportant people because there's more important people here than you. In that parable that he teaches in uh, Luke 14. 1 Timothy 2.2, I referenced that earlier too. We, we should have as our ambition to lead a quiet life. That's, that's, that's a good ambition. Okay, And pray for that. Pray for that, for kings and all who are in authority. That we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. There's a good ambition. So have this as your ambition. Alright, so that's verse 9. And then I got in trouble because I started talking about Fifi and Fluffy and all your dear dogs and cats and whatever. All right. So we've got to talk about animals today. Point C. The soul life of his beast is worthy of merciful regard. The soul life of his beast is worthy of merciful regard. Not the spiritual life, but the soul life. Okay? of the beast. His beast, specifically. There's ownership with his beast. The soul life of his beast is worthy of merciful regard. That's verse 9. I'm sorry, that's verse 10. A righteous man has regard for the life of his animal, but even the compassion of the wicked is cruel. And the second half of the verse I think gets overlooked too because we get distracted by the animals in the first half of the verse. But the idea of what is animal cruelty? And animal cruelty is not what Peter would describe it as. Animal cruelty, biblically speaking, is an expression of uh, righteousness in true compassion. There is a, a phony compassion that is not compassion at all. A phony compassion that turns things upside down and backwards like worshiping the creature instead of the creator. A phony compassion is actually cruel. And the whole movement out there, that's the, the whole green movement is grounded in idolatry. It's Balaamism in the modern world. And the Balaamism in the modern world that is the dirt-worshipping tree-huggers, all right, they're exalting the creature rather than the Creator. And in so doing, they are not compassionate. They are cruel. Because those animals are designed for a function. And that function is for us. All right? Creatures of instinct to be killed. And, and how and where and when and why we kill these animals is our blessing from God. And we'll describe that as well. So, that's, uh, there we go. I'll make lots of friends here today. <laughs> okay? And like I say, if you have pets, that's great. If, if my wife was not allergic, I would have pets. I was in the army for four years just waiting to get out of the barracks. Just one of the biggest things I was looking forward to besides you know, not doing push-ups and sleeping in the mud. Um, beyond that, to get out of the barracks and have my own apartment, the first thing I was going to get was going to be a cat. 
because I had cats as a, as a kid. I love cats. Cats are great. Dogs are dumb, but cats are great. And so my goal was to get out of the army and, and have a cat. That was going to be great. And then I met Sharon. And Sharon's allergic to cats and dogs. So what do you do? Um, yeah, you, you, you say, oh well, sorry, I'm not going to have a cat. I'm going to marry Sharon. And that's, that's what happened. But let me tell you, I, I, I am not philosophically opposed to pets. And I'm not biblically opposed to pets. And if you have a pet dog or cat or lizard or iguana or whatever, great. And even some of the dumber pets, if you have a ferret, whatever you want to have, um, great. You know, We have liberty in Christ. And you can do whatever you want to do in the pet department. I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay? Uh, biblically speaking, all is lawful but not all is profitable. You're neither the better if you do nor the worse if you don't. And there's no reward in the judgment seat of Christ for the, the pet that you had. Okay? Now there might be loss of reward. And I'm going to discuss that because I think there are some maladjusted priorities that will be reflected in the judgment seat of Christ. That, um, that, that, that people use pets instead of well, they, they substitute, and maybe it's not to the point of worship, but it's still to the point of detriment that uh, they find so much companionship in their pets that they are, um, by sin of omission, they are not fulfilling the companionship that we're supposed to have, one with another in the body of Christ. And they are actually diminished in their capacity to serve one another in the body of Christ um, as a consequence of a maladjusted uh, situation there with their pets. So we'll possibly discuss that as well. Um, so this is again part of the better than formula from verse 9 and it is a contrast of, uh, of two ways you can operate, two ways you can approach your animal and, uh, and, and recognize that this is mainly not about pets. Okay, There are no pets anywhere in the Bible. The animal is there uh, as a function of, of work, as a function of food, as a function of wealth, as a function of a, 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 a net worth. Okay? How many camels do you have? How many sheep do you have? How many male and female servants do you have? This is a part of your wealth accumulation in the ancient world. And so regard for your animals is economic as well as um, uh, stewardship in our role as, uh, in, in the dominion that we have over, over creation. So we'll talk about that as well. This is the soul life. When it says life, reading it in verse 10, he has regard for the nephesh of his animal. The soul of his animal. Nephesh is the Hebrew word uh, for soul, number 5315. It applies to animals and humans alike. Adam uh, was formed out of the dust. God formed him, God made him, and then God breathed into him the breath of lives, plural. And Adam became a living nephesh. The man became a living nephesh. And we're going to see this. In fact, I've got a lot of verses here from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And we're going to see how man became a living nephesh. And both of those terms are used of Adam, and both of those terms are used of animals. Animals are called nephesh. Uh, animals have nephesh. Animals are also called living things, living creatures. All right? And so uh, the idea of chayah, the idea of living, is, uh, is present in animals as well as in humans. So next time you offer your 
L'chaim toast to life, okay? And, uh, and you watch Fiddler on the Roof and you have fun with that. But the next time you offer your L'chaim toast to life, remember that life applies to both us in, 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 in the image of God and animals not in the image of God. Big difference. So we have nefesh, animals have nefesh, we have life, they have life. We are the image of God, animals are not. Animals are not, ever, the image of God. So we'll discuss that as well. The life of his beast, the term for beast is behema. It is a generic term, it applies to animals of all sorts. It uh, sometimes is contrasted as a, as a uh, distinction to be found between a domesticated animal and a wild animal. Uh, sometimes, but not always. Okay, the vocabulary is not clear cut in that regard. But the Bible does draw distinctions between cattle and wild animals, tame or domesticated animals and wild animals. And uh, I find that's useful. I find that that people who take undomesticated animals and call them pets are asking for trouble. <laughs> you know, uh, there are certain species that are not and have never been domesticated, never will be domesticated. And you can tame one without domesticating a species. And that's a huge difference. All right. So um, if you have a lion in your backyard that you have, are calling a pet, um, good luck with that. All right. Because that animal is still, although he, that individual might be tamed, he is still as a species not domesticated. That is a wild animal species. And uh, those things are significant as well. In any event, your beast is worthy of merciful regard. Your beast. Notice the possession. A righteous man has regard for the life of all the animals of the world? No. His animal. His animal. That's significant. Because we're talking about possessions we're talking about property rights. Remember Adam's first assignment was to name those animals. Adam was delegated in sovereignty to rule and part of his ruling was to give names. And uh, this is what we do in our, in our dominion mandate from Genesis. But it's his beast that's worthy of merciful regard. What about your neighbor's beast? What about uh, somebody else's beast? What about uh, the wild, the beast, they're called beasts of the field. Because they're not domesticated, they're they're not uh, they're not harnessed for human blessing, for human academic endeavor, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the the milk we consume, or whatever else, the tools. A lot of the horns get used for um, horns. <laughs> okay, the the shofar horn. Where, where did that come from? Well, it used to be on an animal. All right, not on an animal anymore. And then now it's a horn. It gets blown, you know, for priesthood uh, services and for for uh, military functions and other things. And then uh, the skin. Well, the animal doesn't need the skin anymore. The animal's dead. But we use the skin. We make clothes with the skin. And everything that we do for um, that, that those animals are designed to do. They're designed to benefit humanity. They're designed for us. We're not designed for them. They're designed for us. And that's uh, a significant thing. All right. So let's look at these. Uh, Proverbs 12 is not the only place that we have 
the concept presented. There'll be a restatement of these things in chapter 27. We can look at that now, Proverbs 27. And a trio of verses here, verses 23, 26, and 27. Proverbs 27, 23. Know well the condition of your flocks. Pay attention to your herds. You know, if the sheep is sick, the shepherd ought to know about it. If uh, there's a struggle going on, why doesn't the shepherd know about it? Is he not paying attention? Okay. Of course, in principle, we're talking literal animals here, but we can bring it into the church age application for pastors and congregations and applications there. But again, whose flocks are they? Your flocks. Your herds. These are your possessions. And unlike other things that you might have, you might have possessions that are um, depreciating. You might have things that wear out. Shoes and clothes and um, tents and other things. You know, they wear out. They don't last forever and you've got to replace them. Animals though, guess what? They reproduce. And you should have generations of these animals. And you should be expanding your portfolio because they are a reflection of your production, reflection of your wealth. And God has called us to do this. Profit is not evil. Profit is biblical. That we imitate, we image God when we produce things and when we accumulate wealth. All right. Some of this ought to go without saying, but we live in a culture that's turned things upside down and backwards. Now, if you earn a profit, you're greedy. If you accumulate wealth, you're, you're, that's not fair. Somebody else doesn't have the same wealth. All right, so pay attention. Know well the condition of your flocks. Pay attention to your herds. For riches are not forever. Notice the association of animals with wealth. Nor does a crown endure to all generations. When the grass disappears, the new growth is seen. And the herbs, or the herbs, I probably had to pronounce it herbs. I joke around a lot because I used to know a guy named Herb. The herbs of the mountains are gathered in. Okay, the herbs of the mountains are gathered in. Notice, the lambs will be for your clothing. Ah. We get to benefit, Okay. You know, sheep shearing season, and and, and and you know, they're actually better off if you trim them. If you take the wool, let them grow a new coat, take the wool, let them grow a new coat, they're gonna be well tended, they're gonna be well cared for. What are you gonna do? Just let it go grow wild, let it go unsheared and unsheared, okay? That's the difference. And and the folks that are not biblical that are worshiping the creatures instead of the worshiping the creator. They want us to have hands off. They say, men, we just, we just ruin everything. Okay? Except for the, you know, unless you're an aborigine, then, then you're at peace with your environment. But, you know, uh, you know, we ruin everything. That's what they say. Humanity is part of the problem. We pollute. We're ruining the planet. We're ruining the animals. We need to leave things in their pristine condition. See? And we, we need to leave the wetlands as glorious wetlands, right? That is insane. We need to drain the swamp. Because swamps 
foster disease. Swamps become dwelling places for vermin and snakes and and, 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 and bacteria and sickness. And No, drain that swamp, reclaim that land, put it to fruitful use, farm that land. Create more arable land for your nation by draining every swamp you can find. We don't need any swamps. None. Zero. Okay? All right. But this whole thing comes into, into conflict with people today that tell us that we have to leave everything exactly the way that it is. Okay? No. Damn that river. Okay? D-A-M. Block it off. Harness the power. Okay? Control the flooding. See, when we, when we engineer these things, then we are, have the, the better capacity to control the flood. And, and, and we actually mitigate some of the destruction that happens when the land is wild. That's what it means to have dominion, to tame the earth, to subdue it. Because this, this planet is wild. And it was wild before sin was applied to it. It's even more wild now. Now it's wild and fallen. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, <laughs> I, I'm on a soapbox, and I will—I'll stay on this soapbox because these uh, dirt-worshiping tree huggers—they—they um, they get my goat sometimes. All right, when the grass disappears, the new growth is seen. <gasps> Look at that! Mow your yard, uh, your yard sometime, and guess what happens? The grass comes back. The new growth is seen. The herbs in the mountains are gathered in. The lambs will be for your clothing. The goats will bring the price of a field. There will be goat's milk, enough for your food, for the food of your household. Get some goats and they can eat what you can't eat, but then they can give you the milk you need. Sustenance for your maidens. All right. Animals are for us. We eat them, we drink their milk, we we, uh, harvest everything we can when they die. And even before they die, we can take their coats in the, in the case of shearing sheep. Okay? You can't take a cowhide until the cow's dead, but uh, in any event. Let's go back to Genesis now. Genesis 1. Let's see these things. <clears throat> of course, good luck getting a, a uh, environmental wacko to, to, go, to go to Genesis 1 with you. Okay? Most of the Animal rights people are uh, not really that into Genesis. All right, Genesis 1. And here's some, some fun things. And, and to teach this whole chapter um, would be useful. Uh, but, but notice that when the Bible is describing animals, it's not using the 19th century evolutionary mode to describe them, okay? It's uh, not describing them uh, with the, class, the scientific classification that we're accustomed to uh, because of whatever. Um, it actually describes the habitat first and then the creatures that, that live there, right? So, uh, so you have water and there's creatures in the water. Big creatures. You know, huge whales and fish and leviathans. And then there's smaller creatures. And then there's creepy crawly things. And then there's the air and there's the birds that fly in the air. And then there's the land, the dry land. And there's the animals that live on the dry land. Okay? And then you know, creepy crawly things and all that. Um, There were cockroaches before the fall. Okay? I don't know what they were designed to do 
before the fall. Uh, I suspect maybe they weren't quite so creepy and disgusting, but nevertheless, they were on earth before the fall. And when you think about this, it's kind of interesting. God always creates the realm and then He populates it. And He did this with the angels as well. He created the heavens and then He populated with the heavenly host, with the angels. He creates the waters, separates waters from land, puts fish in the waters, uh, the the firmament with the uh, waters above, the waters below. Now there's an expanse, so He puts the birds there. Then the dry land, He puts the land animals there. This has always been His pattern until right now. Until right now. You and I. This is, this, is, this is one of the most glorious things you've never thought about, or I've never thought about until recently. Think about it. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is a coming creation that's not here yet. But, the, but we are. Right? We are the new creation. We're the new creation in Christ. We are in Christ in other words, the residence of that new creation preceded the new creation. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And here we are in Christ, already a new creation in Christ, waiting for our habitat to, be, uh, <laughs> to, to, to come about. At the end of the millennium when all things are made new, we're going to fit right in. Because we're already here. And that's, a, that's an exciting thing to me. Alright, and so when I see these things, we get to Genesis 1.20. God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Alright, and so we have chaya, we have life. These things are alive. Let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great, it says sea monsters, the the tanin, the dragons, the greatest of the, um, you know, they, they dig them up and they call them dinosaurs with their things the greatest of all the water uh, creatures there. And every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed after their kind, and everything is designed as a kind, and everything reproduces as its kind. Dogs will always have puppies, cats will always have kittens. Alright? Because that's their design. And um, God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. So all of this is part of His design. And these living things procreate. These living things do what angels never do, procreate. Okay, They're designed on a basis to do this. And some do it better than others. <laughs> some do it a lot. And uh, for two years in Germany I sat there watching rabbits. And uh, on a missile site, bored to death, watching uh, missiles rust and watching rabbits procreate. And uh, had two years of that in Germany. So there you go. And the r- missiles didn't really rust that badly. But you, you still, you watch these missiles and, uh, and you watch the rabbits. Then verse 20, uh, where am I heading? Verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Again, it is chaya, it is life. Okay, So these things, by virtue of being alive, by virtue of being alive, we should relate to them as living things. Because we serve the living God. Right? Uh, by virtue of being alive, 
We don't want to be cruel. We don't want to destroy life. We don't want to um, be faithless in our responsibilities. Because to do so is insulting the living God. But they don't image God like we do. That's the difference. And so we have, after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And so the term for cattle, we're talking about domesticated animals. And we've domesticated, you know, 12 or 13 dominant uh, types of things. We've domesticated horses and cattle, sheep, goats, um, you know, a handful of things. We've not domesticated, and, and, and there's good videos, by the way. I shared one with Warren a few weeks ago. On did he share that with you? On domestic, the difference between domesticated animals and tame animals, and and uh, why it is that the ancient world came to the new world. Why it is that when Europeans encountered Native Americans, that the Native Americans all died, that the disease went one direction only that all of the plague and all of the sickness and all of the disease and 90% of this hemisphere died of disease. Not racist colonialists, okay? It was disease in the Western Hemisphere that killed 90% of the population. Why didn't it go the other way? Why weren't the Europeans exposed to an American po- America pox, the American plague? They didn't have plague because they didn't have the domesticated animals that the old world had. All right. Anyway, great videos. And if you want, shoot me an email and I'll shoot you a link and you'll be able to watch them. They're, they're very useful. Uh, but here's cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And uh, it was so. And um, this, is, this is what he does. Now, in all of this, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. There is not a single animal that bears the image of God. There is not a single animal that images God. It, remarkably enough, there are animals that bear the image of angels. We, we, we're constantly finding angels with cow faces and, and eagle faces and lion faces. And there are animals that reflect an angelic realm of creation, but none that reflect God. Let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule. So dominion goes one way. We rule the animals. The animals don't rule us. I understand that's kind of funny in some cases because uh, there are pets that rule their masters. Okay? There are pets that, that, have, that are so consuming in their demanding needs that the humans who own them uh, are slaves to those pets. They've got it backwards. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth. Over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so dominion is given to humanity. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, verse 28. Said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Notice, animals were told to be fruitful and multiply. Right? Didn't we read that already? Animals are told to be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the sea, let the birds multiply on the earth. Yeah. But rule? No. Animals are never commanded to rule. So for the people who say that we're animals, uh, no, we are not animals. Okay? 
we do procreate in a male and female kind of way, comparable to how the animals procreate. But we are not animals. We image God and we rule. And uh, aspects there. All right. So rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we have dominion. We get to chapter 2 and it gets restated. And in chapter 2 we read in verse 7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. And it's in a similar fashion, animals were also brought forth from the ground, from the dust. But the difference here, God breathed into us the breath of lives. Man became a living nephesh, a living soul. So don't think of yourself as having a, that we get it backwards sometimes when we say, I have a soul. No, it's not true. I am a soul. I have a body. My soul is clothed in a physical body. But I am not a body with a soul. I am a soul with a body. That is a huge difference. All right. Now, uh, so we have verse 7 there. As we get down, and there's so much more in this. I think that it's fruitful to go through this. I'm really excited because Pastor Cliff is about to start a Genesis series. And, and I'm really excited to see what he does with this and what he can do with this. I believe we see so many things here. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there He placed the man whom He had formed. And so we have directions and we have localities and we have plantings that, that the garden is not the wilderness. It is, it is a thing within a territory. And then there's the, the trees and the food production through the trees and then there's the garden. And then there's rivers. Why are rivers important? Well, they divide territory. There's water rights. And um, you have the land of uh, uh, the river of Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Why is that significant? Because Havilah is not Eden. Eden is not Havilah. Havilah has boundaries. You're either in it or you're out of it. Okay? If you cross the river, now you're in a different land. And Havilah is the land that has gold. Why is that significant? Well, whose land is Havilah? Whose gold is that, that gold? Okay? And the gold of that land is good. The Bedellium, the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. Guess what? Cush is not Havilah. People that live in Cush don't belong in Havilah. People that live in Havilah don't belong in Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, flows east of Assyria. Guess what? Assyria is not Havilah or Cush. See how this is working? And so the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And he should have done a better job. Should have kicked that serpent right out of there. Should have corrected the false doctrine. Should have redeemed his wife. All right. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Why did he have to eat? Why did he have to eat? Okay, We can correct some other things here too. The, uh, the idea of being earthly, natural, the idea of being physical, the idea of being mortal, all of that is by design. None of that is because of the fall. I'm going to say that again. 
mortality versus immortality? We, we get confused when we're reading 1 Corinthians 15 because we've borne the image of the earthly, we're going to bear the image of the heavenly, right? The first is earthly, the first is natural, the first is perishable, the second is imperishable. It's sown perishable, it's raised imperishable. Okay? And please remove sin from that whole discussion. Remove Adam's fall from that whole discussion. It's irrelevant. Adam was created and before he sinned, he was mortal. He was perishable. He was earthly. He was a dust creature. Okay? He had to eat. And he was given all the food he needed to eat. See, the the consequence of sin is not physical death. The consequence of sin is spiritual death. Romans chapter 5 gets so abused, terribly abused, because through one man sin entered in the world and death through sin. Guess what? That wasn't physical death. That was spiritual death and spiritual death only. And then so through one man comes life. That's Jesus Christ and spiritual life in Christ. The only life provided in Romans 5 is spiritual life in Christ. The only death assigned through Adam is spiritual death in Adam. Physical death is not a consequence of the fall. Had Adam and Eve not eaten, they would have starved to death. Had they fallen out of a tree picking a banana, they would have broken their arm or whatever. They would have had a physical damage. They would have had a wound. Okay? I suspect in in plowing their their farm and, 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 and tilling the soil, they killed some worms. Okay? There was worm death before Adam sinned. And, and think about it, there was vegetable death. Every, every, every apple you pluck off a tree, guess what? When you disconnect that fruit from the tree, you just killed that fruit. And then you eat it. Then what happens? Okay? Not to get crude or whatever, but the Bible talks about food going in the mouth, passing through the stomach, and being eliminated. That's by design. That's not a consequence of sin. That's how God designed it. That's true before the fall. I haven't even gotten to chapter 3 yet. And there's, there's fruit here. There's trees. There's death. There's a screensaver. All right, there we go. All right. So, uh, he has to eat. Then, um, but the tree from the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. By the way, this tree does not get replanted in the new heavens or on the new earth. <laughs> okay, Go to Revelation 21 and see the creation of the new heavens and new earth and you'll see the tree of life is replanted. And the river becomes a river of life on the new earth. But there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil and there will not be another fall. Humanity is restored to sinless Adamic conditions for a thousand generations on the new earth. And there will never again be another fall. Alright. So out of the ground, now notice, uh, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And uh, Eve had not yet been brought out of his ribs. He was alone. And uh, all of this took place in stages. By the way, did all this happen on day six? 
Did, did, was Eve taken on day six? I don't think so. And, and when you reconcile chapter one with chapter two, and if you insist on putting all of the animal naming and Adam to sleep and the rib coming out and the woman, and if you, if you pack all that into day six, you're making an assumption in reconciling chapter one with chapter two. Okay? I believe the man was created on day six. God rested on day seven. God went back to work again on day eight. The man went to work on day eight. All right. How long did it take him to look around and say, hmm, (laughs) I don't have my helper? Okay. Long enough to, I believe, long enough to watch the animals. Long enough to check them all out. Long enough to see their uh, male and female operations. Long enough to see (laughs) his design and saying, wait a minute. I'm missing something here. Okay? I don't think it was day six. All right. So, out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Look at that. Delegated responsibility. Part of the dominion mandate. Part of the ruling and subduing comes naming. When you name something, that means you have sovereignty. Right? Theoretically. That's why Satan tries to steal our, uh, steal our language. Redefine terms. Because if he can control the language, he has sovereignty. He calls things marriage that aren't marriage, but he's calling it that. And our culture is going right along with it. So, uh, is, this, is, this, uh, is this Texas or not? What do we call this place? Well, it used to be called something else. And the Comanches called it something else. And then people before them called it something else. And people before them called it something else. Well, people after us are going to call it something else. Whatever. Maybe they'll call it used to be Texas. Or I don't know. They'll call it something. Okay? If you call something, you're in charge. I gave my children their names. No one forced me to. Why is that? It's called sovereignty. And to me it's interesting. When, when the state comes in and says, well you can't do that. Well wait a minute. Who has the sovereignty? Alright. So he gave names. And whatever in the man called a living creature, that was his name. God sanctioned every name Adam gave, came up with. Because God had entrusted that to Adam. He's not micromanaging. He's not overruling. He's not saying, well Adam, that's a dumb name. Why don't you go with this instead? He went with whatever Adam called that creature. Okay? And by the way, these are species. Okay? So he named the dogs dogs and cats cats and elephants elephants. Okay? He didn't give individual personal names. We do that. We give individual personal names. They don't care. Okay? All right. And uh, so the man gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the sky, to every beast. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. His aloneness was not to be met in the animal kingdom. Okay? Which, by the way, should tell you anything you need to know if you are sublimating uh, and, and, and if you believe that animals are designed for your companionship. It's not good for the man to be alone and the solution is not an animal. Okay? The solution is an heir together of the grace of life. For a husband and a wife to grow together in the Word of God. 
and to train up the next generation in the Word of God. All right. So, um, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh at that place. Why did he have to sleep for that? Yeah, why, why put him to sleep? It probably would hurt, okay? Yeah, this is the first anesthesiologist in the... In the, <laughs> the first surgery, and obviously you have to be put to sleep for surgery. Well, not every procedure. You're not always put to sleep for every procedure. But, okay, beyond the fact that it would have been gruesome, okay, beyond the fact that there would have been pain, physical pain associated, blood loss, or whatever else would have happened to his sinless, unfallen body here, being cut open and removed and have a, a bone removed. And then the fashioning, the shaping into a woman. I also think beyond any of that, I think is just the delight that God has in surprising us. In laying before us what we didn't expect to see. In, in um, presenting before us what is for our blessing and not necessarily including us in the process of how he made it happen. All right. You know, I mean, does Adam really need these gruesome memories? <laughs> or the first thing he sees is this, you know, beautiful woman. And so he brings her to the man. Again, woman was made for man's sake, not man for woman's sake. It's a doctrinal principle from 1 Corinthians. And he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So he identifies the doctrine, he identifies the truth. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Not only does he give names, he has reasons for these names. And guess what? He named all the animals and he named the woman. Ooh, feminists won't like that. Okay? Ooh, no, no, no. I'm not taking his name. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to have hyphenated names, or we're going to have two names, or we're going to have, you know, I'm not going to be diminished by taking his name, and all this other garbage. He gave her the name that he gave her. There's a principle in that. All right. Well, that's uh, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We'll come back to this next week. There's a little bit more to get on this, uh, some subpoints we've got to see on this, and then uh, we'll be able to advance beyond, beyond the concept. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for uh, the safe journey back from Ukraine and, and uh, sleep. Hadn't been a lot, but it's been enough, and thank you for the sleep. Provide, uh, Father, for uh, all things moving forward. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.